Back when I was in college, there was a class called Stage, Speech, and Movement that I had to take as a part of my major. Well, thinking back, it might not have been a requirement, but it was strongly recommended. I didn't like the class, and I hated the professor, and it was one of those experiences where we all just had to grit our teeth and make it through and hopefully take something positive from it in the end. No, don't worry, I'm not about to compare a theater class I took to living through trench warfare. I bring it up because one of the most insane assignments we had to do for this class came in multiple parts. First, we had to pick a monologue. Then we had to choreograph an interpretive dance based on the monologue. And then we had to write a haiku inspired by the interpretive dance. If that sounds like I got a degree in underwater basket weaving, I understand. It sounded pretty bonkers to us, too. I don't like interpretive dance, not performing it at least, but that's probably because I move with all of the grace and dignity of a fully stocked refrigerator. And I hate haiku, again, probably because I refuse to say in two words what I could say in 27, so brevity is clearly not my strong suit. But one thing this assignment did give me was an appreciation for the challenge inherent in adapting a piece of art from one medium to another. Film adaptations are a tricky business, and the more popular the source material, the trickier it gets. Sure, it can give you a built-in fan base that makes commercial success much more easily attainable, but if that fan base doesn't like your interpretation, good luck to you. Ultimately, any adaptation is subject to the following questions. Why does this need a big screen adaptation? Why does it need to be adapted now? And why do it like this? And if you're smart, you'll ask yourself those questions at the beginning of the process instead of at the end. Today's film is pretty brand spanking new, having premiered on Netflix less than a month ago at the time this episode will publish. So history hasn't had a chance to really come to a consensus about the choices made in the course of the adaptation. The filmmaking itself, the acting, the directing, the cinematography, are all pretty breathtaking. And watching what this film does during the marathon of awards season is going to be really interesting. The only complaints we've heard this early on in the game are the departures that the film chooses to take from the source material, and the way those choices contrast with the two previous film adaptations. This is a little surprising to me because I didn't think there would be a huge fandom for an almost century-old German anti-war novel. But the internet is a weird place where people can get mad about anything. As someone who is still mad about what Peter Jackson did to Faramir in The Two Towers, and who will never forgive what Hulu did to Catch-22, I totally get it. But in this film's defense, when you ask it those three questions, why, why now, and why like this, the film has answers. And those answers make a lot of sense. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So move 10 meters to the left after you fire, don't forget the cutlery, and don't read too much into that old name tag stitched into your coat. That, that's just a mistake. Just ignore that. With a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director as we discuss the beautiful, brutal, and notably very first German adaptation of the landmark World War I novel by Eric Maria Remarque. All quiet on the Western Front.
Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome, everyone, to Danger Close, a war film podcast. I guess I could say welcome back, even though people can listen to these back to back. But we are back for our first regular episode in our reduced holiday schedule. We've been doing stuff behind the scenes and working on our Patreon and working on other recordings. But uh, this is the first one we have put out since Red October. And we are very excited to be back and talking about something contemporary. Today we're here to talk about this year's, very recent, just came out uh, a day or two ago, Netflix adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a German production. And Katie's here to tell us a little bit about that with her mission briefing. All Quiet on the Western Front is an adaptation of a novel written by Arik Maria Remarque, who based the book on his own experiences during World War I. Published in 1929, the story was quickly optioned into a film helmed by acclaimed director, Louis Milestone, and it premiered in 1930. The film and the book faced Nazi censorship only a decade later, and the story has become an iconic description of the German experience near the end of World War I. Surprisingly, this is the first time the story has been put to film by a German production team. When the film was announced, the critical response was less than enthusiastic, and the initial reviews out of the Toronto Film Festival had generally positive things to say, but no real expectation that it would be more than a blip for audiences. On wide release, however, it was one of the top 10 streamed on Netflix, and audiences and the wider critical community were impressed. The film went from mildly successful to one with real Oscar chances due to the quality of the filmmaking, the acting, and how much the movie impacted the audience with its nuanced storytelling. While this isn't our first World War I film, it is the first made by Germans about that conflict. And I am wondering, especially considering the insane critical response that this film is having right now, how this being made by Germans affected your viewing of the story. Oh, also a quick question. How did you guys watch this? What language? Liam? Oh, in German. In German with, uh, with, with British English subtitles. Oh, excellent. So when they said something like, I don't know, color, there was a U in it. Color? Yes. <laughs> I watched it that way as well. But as I was taking notes and rewatching some scenes on my second viewing, I rewatched those scenes dubbed just to get a taste for the dubbing. And the dubbing seemed extremely well done from what I saw. Interesting. You know, I don't know if I was conscious of it. Like, I knew it was a German production. I knew that going in, and I knew it was a German language film. While I was watching it, there was some interesting context that was brought to it that I didn't remember being in the novel. I haven't read this novel for a very, very long time. I was a terrible student to the surprise of nobody who knows me, and I oftentimes did not do the assigned reading. But in a in a nod to how good this book is, I actually did most of the reading on this one. And I remember a fair bit of it. There were some parts of this that really did strike up some memories there. But there was a lot of stuff that was like, I don't remember this being in the book. And it was a lot of context that I don't know you would have gotten if it wasn't a German production. So they did try to put this in a lot of historical context and bring in the you know, more generals opinions. And you see the diplomats who are trying to negotiate, 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 (laughs) trying to negotiate a ceasefire 
to save lives. And there's a lot of that kind of contentious back and forth going on. And you see the French being very French about the whole thing. And it just, you know, it was, it was interesting to see those elements brought into a story that I remember being mostly from like the grunts perspective and having a much more limited point of view. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if a production that wasn't German would have made those departures from the original book. You know, if there was a British production of it or even a French production of it or an American production of it, that they probably would have stuck pretty closely to the text. And Dan, you read it very recently, so you can probably correct me if I'm off on that. But I feel like this did take some. Yeah, no, you're right on. Yeah, some pretty big departures from the from the original source material. Your steel trap memory is holding. (laughs) Thank you, sir. (laughs) Yeah, so. I promise I did not go into this with the intent of like, oh, I'm going to research this for a week and like read everything and watch everything. But because we had a little downtime and we weren't recording as much or at least not publishing as much and I had some time in between edits, I was like, you know, this book is 300 pages, but they're 300 small pages. And despite the heavy material, it was an easy read, if that makes sense. Like it goes quickly. It's very straightforward, beautifully written, but you know, the hundred pages of Heart of Darkness were a much tougher read than these 300 pages, I would say. And so I went back, read the original book, which I don't remember if I had ever read. If I did, I was like in middle school. It was a long time ago. And then I watched, uh, because of just whatever logistical issues, I actually watched the 1979 uh, CBS, I think, production with Ian Holm oh. and Ernest Borgnine, which we could talk about later. And then I went back and watched the original 1930 film, which was Universal or Paramount. I can't remember, but an American uh, studio got the rights and very quickly did it because the book is from 28 and the first film came out in 1930. So I was fully immersed in the novel and the two iterations, which we'll go through this in detail a little bit more later, but pretty much the 1930 version sticks pretty close to the novel doesn't really stray too far. The only thing they do is mix up the chronology of a few events, which I'm not going to break down in detail because they don't change the theme very much. And the 1979 version felt like an updated version. Now, it wasn't a shot-for-shot remake, but they didn't take any big departures. All the plot points are the same. All the characters are the same. For me, the main differences uh, between the 1930 and 1979 version where the acting wasn't as archaic you know we've talked about it before but you go back and watch something from 1930 a lot of these actors especially the older actors are trained for silent film so it's just a different delivery and impossible to know how that played to regular people at that time but for me it's it affects my suspension of disbelief a little bit right because it's more theatrical and the 1979 version the acting is a little more natural and a little more believable but both versions have their pros and cons so yeah they're both worth watching like liam intimated this version this german version definitely takes the biggest departures they eliminated completely certain parts that in my opinion for the way they were trying to make this movie would have sort of interrupted the flow of it so paul is never seriously wounded and never goes back home on leave for example those are two huge departures because paul spends some time in the hospital uh recovering in the original story and he also goes home sees his mother and his sister 
hangs out with his dad and some of the older Germans in a bar and they're like, oh, how's it going out there? Great. And it's like he's very disillusioned with the war, but all these people have no idea what he's been through. So there's a bit of that. It's almost like uh, that immediate PTSD he's getting from the war or just the current trauma, even of knowing he has to go back. You know, part of it is that effect you see in 1917 with Schofield where he's like, how you know the other guys asking him like oh how was leave and he's like well it sucked because i knew i had to come back here so there's a bit of that and then all of the political bigger picture stuff none of that is in the novel or the other two films whatsoever so that's a completely new thing that this film has added that being said i've seen some not critics but just people on facebook from you know the average rivet counters that are nitpicking guns and whatever which i never really care about but I did see a few comments were like, I don't even know why they use the same title. This has nothing to do with the book. And I think that's total BS. A lot of the plot points are exactly the same. A lot of the dialogue is still pulled directly from the book. But sure, the, of the variations of the story that have been put out, this takes the biggest departures, I think, for good reason and for the best. Yeah, it's the probably the least, what you'd call the least faithful, at least as far as the actual plot points go maybe not thematically right yeah well i'm sure we'll break down those differences later but katie it sounds like you had the least amount of experience of the three of us with this story yes i have not read this book or seen either one of the other two movies and i kind of like once we decided we were going to do this i debated i was like do i want to go in completely fresh because I didn't watch any uh, trailers or anything on this, which I usually do. Mm -hmm. Usually big into watching trailers, actually. But I haven't had a lot of time in my personal life also recently. So I was like, you know what? We'll just go in fresh and we'll just watch this and absorb it and view it from that critical lens that I like to take these new releases. Because I, I watched the first two minutes in, in British English with subtitles and I was like, no, this is terrible, and I hate everything about it. And I immediately switched to German. And it might have gotten better, but for me, like I'm pretty picky with what I will watch not subtitled because I don't generally enjoy dubbing. Yeah, I don't mm. usually enjoy a, a dub film. So you started watching the dub. Yes, yes, and like two minutes, maybe, probably not even that. I was like, no, no we're going to German on this. Did and you I'm, do that on purpose? Because Netflix defaulted to German with the English subtitles for mine. I did it on purpose. I okay. I wanted to see. I was like, well, let's see what it sounds like, what it is. And just dubbing an anime is really hard. Dubbing for real life with something like this. I was like, no, this is just not going to cut it for me. But I can see why you would watch it if you were doing notes and stuff, Dan. I got, that makes sense. Like, put it in the dub. Yeah, and again, that was only my second time around. I still watched it completely in German the first time with subtitles. Right. I also really wanted to get a feel for the German actors because I, while I hadn't watched any trailers and didn't know anything about it, you know, I have lots of friends in the critic world, so I was seeing people's reactions to it as they are getting out of their film festival screenings and press review screenings and all that, talking about it. And I had seen some of the before talk. So I was like, oh, I really want to see these performances because that is getting so much praise. Right. And whew, I was blown away. I think the fact that it's a German production allows it to be, in my mind at least, I felt like this was fairly inquisitory of the end of the war. Germany's response to the end of the war is as much as it can be from this perspective as well as humanizing the German soldiers in a way that I can see 
it might not have worked so well. I mean, obviously, this isn't a World War II movie. World War II, it's a lot harder to have sympathy in those cases. But in World War I, especially by this point, all those soldiers were just so demoralized. And the German filmmakers seemed to understand that. And so they really gave both sides of this, of how these German boys felt. And it felt realistic. And the actors all pull off without a hitch. So I was more sympathetic than I think I would have been otherwise. And then I like that. I like that because it, at times at the end, I was like, do you really need to stab that guy? It's right before the armistice. And then I thought it was like, yeah, yeah, he did. He really did. That French soldier is totally justified in what he is doing. And that little French boy is totally justified in what they are doing because of not these men's fault, but that the movie takes the time and effort to show that is really such a great choice storytelling wise that's one thing that all versions and the book do not change uh, at least not in the big picture is everyone dies by the end uh, in terms of paul's group of friends right. and him all die by the end of it although i guess we can start at the end <laughs> and i found it interesting the difference in how they showed paul's death because it is very different in every single version meaning in the four versions if you include the book in the book he dies on like an otherwise pretty much peaceful day yeah so the book leaves it kind of vague the final postscript says he fell in october 1918 on a day that was so quiet and still on the whole front that the army report confined itself to the single sentence all quiet on the western front he had fallen forward and lay on the earth as though sleeping. Turning him over, one saw that he could not have suffered long. His face had an expression of calm, as though almost glad the end had come. So, as you can see, it doesn't explain exactly how he dies. It just describes it in general terms. In the original film, he's in the trench, kind of just manning his rifle and his slit, and a butterfly lands outside and he goes to reach for the butterfly in a moment of calm and as he's reaching a french sniper takes him out in the 1979 version they did something similar but not exactly the same he sees a bird land on a tree and he pulls out his sketchbook and he's sketching the bird and in the midst of sketching it he stands up and kind of turns to get a better angle and exposes himself and is shot by a sniper and falls down in the mud and dies that way and in this one, as we saw, it's pretty intense combat scene. And then you get some peace at the end when he's already dying. So, yeah, that was uh, it was interesting that they chose to have Paul die in totally different way or slightly different ways in every version. Kitty, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned some of the critical response in your mission briefing. Now that you've seen the film, did you strongly agree or disagree with any particular review? Or what did you think about what you read? Mm. I feel like I had I had some agreements, definitely, along the lines of this is all of them talked about. This is fantastic acting. Uh, the cinematography is great. There was some mixed responses to the score, but mm. I think it worked once you get into it. But that might be because I like that composer. So generally, I, I was pretty in line with with the critics that I read. And very in line with the critics whose responses that who are obviously my friends, we have similar tastes in film. I was like, yeah, this was great. This was totally um, Netflix made a good gamble with this. And I figured mm -hmm. they probably did when I saw that this is the film that Germany's picked to represent it at the Oscars this year. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, that's my guarantee that it's going to be good because I enjoy German film 
And there's lots of great stuff out there. So that they chose this was so indicative of its quality. Yeah, I think it's funny that you mentioned the score because that was one of the things that I was just like, I'm not sure about this because the the book is a classic. It's a, so the source material is very old and a, an established part of the culture. Right. And for the most part, the filmmaking doesn't do anything crazy. Like it's a it's a stylish film, but it's not highly stylized in its filmmaking. You don't have them playing with the frame rate like they do in 300, where it's like super fast motion, then slow motion for the hit and then super fast motion again. They're not playing with the form in that way. Mm -hmm. There are points in it where I almost felt like the score was playing against the rest of the film Hmm. with that almost uh, Hans Zimmer. Like it wasn't quite that far. The main theme. Yeah, but it, it it did have that at points. It almost felt like a Ramstein needle drop kind of thing in the middle of the, you know, it's just like which is very yeah. I mean, which is that that sort of electronic sound is very German. It is very German. That's a harmonium, by the way. I don't know if you guys. I've never heard of that instrument. Oh yeah, that's all I have. Yes, uh, but I like okay. I really love industrial music, which was um, pioneered in Germany. Mm-hmm. KMFDM is one of my favorite bands. Kill motherfucking Depeche Mode. Yes, which is one of the original big industrial bands. And this guy is also a musician, not necessarily in the industrial world now, but he goes by... Volker Bertelmann. Yes, but that's he, he also makes music under a different name. Hauschka is what he goes by that he makes music. But he was also, you know, he's been nominated for Academy Awards for Lion, or I think it was for Lion, and then done a bunch of other films as well. It was weird. I know I would have liked it in another movie. I'm not 100% I liked it for this particular movie. I felt like it did play against the rest of the film in a way, but not enough to like really ruin it for me. But every time it every time it happened, it did pull me out a little bit. Now, are you talking about specifically the fact that those parts of the score sound pretty modern and you're seeing something that's all that's over a hundred years ago in the depiction is that what you're talking about or something else yes and not only that but like the the i mean the filmmaking is beautiful and it's relevant and, and appeals to a modern audience but apart from how crisp everything looks and the colors that they use there's no anachronism in the movie except a little bit in the score right you know what i mean like the score is a little bit anachronistic where the rest of the movie is decidedly not. So that's why like every time that that tone dropped, it did pull me out. I didn't mind it because it honestly, it almost felt kind of like something you'd see in like Pink Floyd's Welcome to the Machine. the the motif that kind of summoned up in my mind because it's always when it's really just talking about like the the movie is getting into that war machine kind of impersonal faceless sort of just meat grinder mode right which is very much the theme of welcome to the machine and has a similar sort of beat and electronic sound to it but i felt like they were kind of three separate elements to the score that they brought in at different times one was the modern electronic sound, which you get in that first sequence after the... Following the uniform back. 
following that cold open like yep the cold open thank you yeah after that is when you get the harmonium there are other times including i think right afterwards where you get just that really really sharp um snare yeah it's like kind of a snare drum you get just those little sharp moments of snare but then there's bits of strings and more quote-unquote traditional music in the rest of it Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about that because I, I I kind of agree. At first, when I heard the electronic, I was like, ooh, this is a bit modern for what we're seeing. At the same time, thinking back to the other films, the other films have elements that place them directly in the time frame when they were made, which nothing's really going to be isolated right. from the decade in which it was made. For the 1930s version, I would say it's the acting coming from especially the older actors who had been in silent film. So it's this theatrical a bit over the top, which feels a little dated, at least for me. And also a lot of the big battle scenes, while they're beautifully shot, some of it is sped up, I guess, just to make it more intense. But to me, uh, from a modern viewpoint, it doesn't look good. I'm like, eh, this feels like old, old timey movie, whereas the rest of it doesn't feel that way. So I didn't love that. The 79 version, again, it's updated. The color scheme is very early like late 70s early 80s or something about it that dates it there as well as they did a lot of sort of not bird's eye view but kind of far away battle scenes where they're trying to sort of show you the bigger picture of the battlefield the scope yeah the scope and i was like that's cool but it didn't feel as intimate the one thing not to change subjects but the one thing that i really loved about this film is first of all i think it falls into what katie calls bold decision making mm-hmm. they were not on the fence about any of the decisions like the score is decisive they clearly had to make some decisions the editing is very decisive and so is the camera work and i think what you get is some very very intimate camera work that reminded me of 1917 in some ways and i'm sure the director was inspired by 1917 and so was the dp but for everyone who felt that the one shot you know stitched together one shot appearance of 1917 was a little gimmicky which again was not how i felt i think this has none of those elements where you get the single shots which are probably all real single shots or maybe not i didn't look into that technical aspect there's not that much information about this film yet because it's so new but i felt like uh, that really put you in there with whoever the camera is sticking with whether it's the first soldier who's killed heinrich or paul and while i don't want to spoil everything about the director's intent uh, because i'll save that for my breakdown there are a couple of youtube interviews you can watch and uh in one of them he talks about wanting to make put the camera on the character to see if he could make you feel what that character was feeling so for the most part instead of trying to show you the overall battle although you do see a lot of that happening in the background or you do get some aerial shots but they're like fast and stylish and they go away pretty quickly most of the time you're following someone pretty directly so i think they did succeed in balancing out the bigger picture stuff with a more intimate portrayal for me that really worked there's a lot that really works in this movie. I agree. For really the only thing that I was like, huh, was that that little bit of score and the places where they did the departures to the larger political context. So you did or didn't like the larger political context? So I liked the idea of it, 
The execution I found a little bit confusing. Okay. For one, it seemed, and now you guys might have a better understanding of the historical timeline that we're we're dealing with here, but I don't know if there was a, a an initial ceasefire that had to be negotiated so that the Treaty of Versailles could then be negotiated later, but it seemed like the meeting on the two trains out in the middle of the woods was the thing that was going to decide everything, including how severe the penalties were going to be on Germany and what kind of measures of retribution were going to be exacted at that point in order to even have the larger conversation. I found that just a little bit distracting because I know just enough to be dangerous that like I know that there were a lot of austerity measures and there were a lot of punitive measures that were placed on Germany oh, yeah. after the war that then directly led in a lot of ways to World War II. But I also know that that happened at the Treaty of Versailles and there was a lot of like there was a lot going on there. So having a lot of those things brought into this, I found a little bit distracting just because I was like, wait, this doesn't sound exactly like I thought it played out. Maybe I'm wrong. And I found myself like wondering about that in the middle of this movie when I think it's a movie that doesn't want you leaving the confines of the movie while you're watching it. So I think they had a really complicated task here because they chose, like you said, to keep you with the characters and especially Paul and Kat. That's the other thing is the other stories you get to kind of you get a little more banter between the friends and you get to find out more about each character in this. Paul and Kat are the characters you know the most about. Everyone else dies pretty quickly before you get to know them. That was one thing some critics complained about and some viewers complained about. So you do see this effort to kind of stay in the fight. But the truth is that the end of World War One was about as complicated as the beginning of World War One. Oh, yeah. Germany was losing severely by the last quarter of 1918. Yeah, it had reached catastrophic proportions at home and that was the biggest part of it right well again there's sort of different variables here one of them is that the allied tank production for example which is actually shown in this film whereas tanks are not in this story in the book or in the other films was way more prolific the french and the british especially towards the end of the war were really dumping in tanks when the germans had a handful of tanks honestly they were just way behind and don't forget that Part of this film shows you, you know, spring 1917, which is where the Americans came into the war. So you're talking about these people who, by the way, the Germans did not rotate their units out. So infantry units that were there, while they may have taken some leave here and there, the way we see Paul in in the original uh, novel, they were there for multiple battles and were on the front for two to four years. So these guys are worn out And now you have in the background, like the Americans were a ton of pressure because all of a sudden the Americans are coming into the war and just dumping eventually millions of troops into the war. And supplies. Supplies, your money, you know. They're all fresh faced and happy. And they're all feeling very heroic. That was the other part of it is that they are coming in on a rescue mission. So I mean, the opposite of the way the German troops felt. And I think there's an argument to be made by historians that the contribution that American soldiers made to this war at the end was 
more a depressant on German morale and an increase of allied morale, probably more than it was a actual physical help. Now, clearly, Americans died in combat and they did participate in the combat. But I'm just saying, I think their morale shift that they caused was more of an effect than anything else that they did. It's the psychological effect. And the psychological effect allowed it to not actually become the physical effect of the Americans being involved in the war for an incredibly long period of time because you're already so beaten down by that and then you see fresh reinforcements with the knowledge that America can just keep sending people and money and supplies and you don't have any of that. America doesn't necessarily need to fulfill two years more of combat because they they could give two more years of combat. That is a feeling I think that they really did capture pretty well by the end of the movie, especially in the scene with the tanks where, you know, you have them come back and they take that French line and then the tanks come rolling over them and just killing everyone in its path and then they figure out how to fuck up the tanks and they're like blowing tanks up and they're like yeah we took that tank out and then they turn around and there's just more tanks right and guys with flamethrowers just setting everyone on fire and it's just like jesus christ what else do these guys have when did they get the flamethrower guys like is the vibe that you get from all of these germans who are just like shit or like the scene where it's right before armistice and the general is we're gonna go and fight again and you can see the the few men are like i'm not fucking doing that you can go to hell and they get put up against a wall exactly whereas the rest of them they're just like guess i have to go back out there again like they're just so defeated or they're like paul and he just doesn't give a shit anymore (laughs) yep he's gone or think about even the psychological effect when they do the counterattack, make it into the French trench and they get into their dispensary and there's like sausages and cheese and fresh bread. Now, clearly they're taking advantage because they're starving. So they're scarfing that stuff down. But think about the bigger psychological effect of going, oh, we've been eating shoe leather for a week and these people have fresh supplies coming in. How can we? They've got China. Bacon, baguettes. Nice plates. Right. How can we possibly keep this up? So that's kind of on the front lines what is happening. Again, I think the reason why they tried to bring in a little bit of the bigger picture background is because if you look at the negotiations between the higher ups and the military and what was going on at home with the civilian government, Germany is a complete shit show at this point. The Kaiser thinks he can turn this around. He thinks that the troops are loyal to him. And if he just gets in there and gives them a nice speech, they're going to be like, yeah, for the fatherland. And they're going to go in there and win this war. Like literally Kaiser Wilhelm thought that all the way till the end. Oh, yeah. He was very delusional. The German government is falling apart and they are starting to hand off control. There's Marxists that want to have a revolution the way the Russians had a revolution at this time, which also affected the end of the war. Mm -hmm. Which is briefly mentioned with the comment about the the Bolsheviks are going to outrun us and all of that. Right. So now there's infighting in the streets in Berlin. There's a lot of talk about uh, the Social Democrats fucking everything up for them. Well, there's the Social Democrats, but there's also the Bolsheviks, which are more extremist leftists. So there are factions of leftists at home that are trying to take over the German government. And essentially, some want to turn it into a republic, some want to not. But the point is, 
the emperor is a foregone conclusion that he's going to be deposed. He doesn't know that and he's <laughs> fighting against that, but that's what's happening back home. By November 9th, so a few days before the armistice was signed, which I think is what you're seeing on the train is the first armistice, meaning just the stopping of combat. Like, we'll figure out the long-term peace deal later, which took all the way till June of 1919. But it was like, let's stop killing each other. Like, let's start saving these troops first and we'll figure the rest out later is kind of what's happening. And the resistance, of course, is the difference between a conditional surrender or armistice, which we tried to do in World War II. There were talks of doing that with Hitler. There were even times where the German government might have been amenable to that. But the idea is, okay, if we call this now, we might get a say in the conditions. If we get backed into a corner where they know there's no way we can win this war, we're fucked because they're going to impose whatever conditions they want or just say, this is an unconditional surrender, sign this, which is pretty much what Foch, the French general that's depicted here, is doing. On the 9th, Friedrich Ebert becomes the chancellor of the new, quote unquote, German Republic. Again, in the background, Kaiser Wilhelm is still like, I'm in charge. What are they doing? Let's like take this back. Let's win this war. On the 11th, the armistice is signed. Now, uh, Daniel Bruhl is portraying Matthias Erzberg in the film. He's the vice chancellor of Germany. So like the vice president. I don't know how realistic that is. I don't know if uh, that kind of makes sense. Maybe that the chancellor was back in Berlin or Munich back at home, whereas the vice chancellor was on not the front lines, but, you know, in in the field on November 28th. Kaiser Wilhelm II finally abdicates and goes into exile, I want to say in Austria initially, Switzerland, I can't remember. But anyways, he leaves the country and his rule is officially over. The Treaty of Versailles is the famous treaty that finally ended everything and was the big peace treaty. The first peace treaty was signed on June 23rd. So there were a series of treaties where they kept adjusting things. And you got to remember there were countries in the East that had to be signatories as well as Germany, Austria, Hungary, all the allies, mm -hmm. etc. So again, just like the beginning was complicated, the end was complicated too. The Treaty of Versailles, I think on June 28th was the final treaty that was signed, which is probably why it's the most famous. Again, someone can write in and correct us if we're wrong. We're not a history podcast, but we're doing our best. And that is what Liam is familiar with in terms of founding of the League of Nations. Woodrow Wilson was involved. All the, yep. all yes, that the kind 14 of stuff. points had already been given. And now Germany is put into the situation that 20 years later led to the rise of the Nazis and the start of World War Two, because economically this caused, you know, huge depression. Their army was reduced to a hundred thousand man army is what Germany was allowed to have. Basically just a, I mean, it's not even self-defense. You're not defending Germany. It was like a police force, essentially. Yeah, kind of like a military police force, right? Right. There were generals who were fighting and disagreed with this and were like, oh, we're being backstabbed by the civilians, etc. So, and, and I, I haven't read anything that says that what you see happen in the film happens, meaning that on the morning of November 11th, some rogue general was like, all right, fuck this. We're going to get one last victory and, you know, made a push. That definitely seems incredibly far fetched. Right. But I think they include it to give the military's perspective on signing a treaty more like the military that was 
with the Kaiser. Like, we can't surrender. We must persevere. Right. It's the conflict between the higher ups in the military, the civilian government and the actual troops on the ground. And I I do think that there were parts of the front that did not get the word in time. And after 11 a.m., so on the 11th of the 11th at 11, there were troops who fought and died tragically after that. But I think it was simply because the word hadn't gotten to that part of the front as opposed to generals trying to get in before the actual armistice started. So again, someone can write in and correct us, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. I think the thing that's interesting that I'm familiar with in this is so Germany had been wanting to fight this war for like 30 years at this point. There were plans that had been drawn up for decades that were updated and changed. And the German military during this time was uh, pretty hereditary, kind of like the, the British Navy and that type of thing. Like the general in this talks about his father was in this exact same regiment and all that shit. Mm-hmm. Like that was pretty mm-hmm. standard for uh, higher ups in the German army. I'm a soldier. My father was an officer in this regiment. He fought in the three wars under Bismarck. He won all three of them. In 1871, he marched on Paris. And when he returned, he was a hero. I was too late in being born, Brixdorf. It's been 50 years of no war. What is a soldier without war? And they had a fucking mission that they were on and desperately wanted to achieve this goal for reasons that i i still i've read them and i'm like move on move on sir move on because they're just so obsessed with this glory and owning france they want to teabag france for the 15th time i think and they talk a little bit about that with the general and i think that was the part that i liked that they included that because i think it gives more perspective on that aspect of it is that the war went on for so long not just because of the kaiser but because of this old entrenched militaristic idea of german supremacy and the need to show your power through warfare and Last time they'd had such good results when they invaded France. So obviously they were going to have the exact same thing because not 50 years before Germany had invaded France, conquered them, Mm -hmm. took part of their country. I think that gives a little more wide ranging perspective to what's going on. Did it fit into this film story? That's debatable for sure. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's the same way, you know, like we've talked about before where you do composite characters, where you take, let's say a smaller story where you tell the story of five bank robbers or whatever it is, right? Or or there's Mm -hmm. there's 10 of them and you're like, ah, it's too complicated to write a script. Let's make it five and we'll condense their characteristics into these five characters because it's an easier plot to follow. I think this is a similar example in a war setting where they're like, okay, let's have this general represent a bunch of the opinions of the german generals at the time and then let's show these civilians condensing kind of what the civilians were doing in the background and i will say that it does feel like that this general feels like a composite character and i think that was once you get towards the end and they have that okay nope we're gonna go fight this one last fight it becomes a little too heavily it feels a little too metaphorical and not grounded in the realism that we've been experiencing right so much yeah i i did find that it was the weakest part of the film was the last 30 minutes not that i disliked it but it just felt like they were reaching a little bit whereas the rest of it felt 
a lot more cohesive and I was like a hundred percent with the intent of everyone in terms of how they were doing it. I find that sometimes so, and I find this in a lot of adaptations where you take the biggest departures from the text. I feel like those are usually the parts that feel extraneous or random or tacked on or some other adjective that means not as good as the rest of it. You know, like it's just right. right. It, it just doesn't seem to flow quite right because, you know, maybe sometimes you had this big idea about a thing that you're like, oh, well, I'm going to take this, but I'm also going to put it in the context of that. But that isn't necessarily supported by the text that you're adapting. Right. You can get away with an awful lot if there's textual support from the source material. If you stray too far afield from that and like you can't keep one hand on the on the source material pole, I think you it doesn't necessarily mean that it ends up bad, but it you're putting yourself in a little bit of risk. Yeah, it's a risk. Yeah. Like you're saying, adding things that are a spacewalk away from the original material, meaning there's just zero evidence of it other than the historical record. Like the entire Catch-22 adaptation that Hulu did. <laughs> sure. Whereas removing some parts of the original material, again, like Paul's leave or Paul's time in the hospital, because you're just trying to stick with the front is... Also a risk, but I think less risky. And that probably worked better than what you're talking about. Absolutely. It's cutting things out of the source material to condense the story or to focus on one thing and not the bigger picture. Editing things out is a whole lot safer than putting things in that weren't originally there. Right. And how do you guys feel about that when you're dealing with nonfiction versus fiction? Because this story is debatably based on some of her Mark's experiences, but it's completely fictional in terms of the characters. And it's a, you know, it doesn't, it's not even in putting you in any specific battles. It's just supposed to be kind of the general experience of a German infantryman at the front. Do you think that you have a little more leeway to do this when you're talking about some, a, a completely fictional story? So I think that's part of what my problem with the additional external context is is that when you when you're taking this fictionalized story sure it's based on experiences but it's fiction but then you put it in a context of like actual historical people and you're blurring that line between fiction and historical fiction and non-fiction that's i think why it pulled me out in those parts because if it were just the purely fictional story and these fictional characters, you could have gotten away with an awful lot. But as soon as you pull in like the real world context into the fictionalized story, I think it was almost like a little too concrete. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I get what you're saying. Yeah. If they had left it sort of vague, not to draw the direct comparison, but like in, in 1917, there's the unspoken historical context of it's like the day before the Americans joined the, the fight. It's when they mm-hmm. were pulling back to that, the Hindenburg line. Right. They chose to write a specific date in history at the beginning of the film when they absolutely did not need to. They didn't need to, but then they also didn't mention it and they just said this is when we're setting our story and then they told this story in that unspoken context this has an established fictional story that they then decided to put in a very concrete clearly defined spoken context if the adaptation failed that's where it failed i'm not saying that it did but i think that's where they ran into the most trouble right 
Well, and I was telling you guys earlier that having immersed myself in the three previous stories, quote unquote, again, all based on the same source material, I was very curious. And as everybody knows, I don't watch trailers, so I really didn't expose myself to anything other than the cover of this film. He knew what Paul's eyes looked like. Exactly. (laughs) God damn, those are some nice eyes, though, right? Yeah, these guys were all very interesting looking. I mean, I do like that they picked. I didn't look up how old Felix Kemmerer. My German's going to be iffy here, guys. I'm doing my best. I am good with the German. <laughs> I'm from Pittsburgh. Don't ask me anything. If you listen carefully, it's uh, Paul Boima is how what we see as Baumer is pronounced. He was born in 1995, by the way. Oh, okay. So that makes him what? 25, 26? 27. Real quick, before we talk about the good casting, I saw something that I think you will appreciate them not doing because I did look up some IMDb trivia on the like seven items of trivia that this film. has. Yeah, like the Mm -hmm. the three things that are on here. So apparently a a guy named Roger Donaldson was initially attached to direct the film. This film has been in the works for several years. Mimi Letter and Roger Donaldson were originally attached to direct Ian Stokel and Leslie Patterson's script. Right. Travis Fimmel was going to play Stanislaus Kaczynski. Oh, I did see that. When Roger Donaldson <laughs> was attached to direct the film. And I was like, oh, shit, Dan dodged a bullet on that one. Save. That would have just ruined the entire movie for me. Famously not German. <laughs> so let's get into the casting a little bit. As per usual, actors are often older than the characters they're portraying. I think here you're running into the issue that a lot of these guys are super young in the story. Powell and his friends are all 18, 19, just barely finishing high school if they even let him finish i feel like they kind of were just like fuck these exams let's go sign up right you get the vibe that they were like school is not important anymore guys you have to go fight for your country you have the chance to earn the right to wear the uniforms you have been given and by going to the front line in flanders we'll pierce the enemy and then you will in a few short weeks finally march on paris Our future, the future of Deutschland, lies in the hands of its greatest generation. My friends, that is you, you see! Therefore, off to the camps for the Kaiser, God, and the Fatherland! Encouraged by their teacher. And as you go along in the story, these recruits are getting younger and younger. So the theme that by the end of it, when all his friends are dead and fresh troops are showing up and they're like 15 and 16, I think that's pretty accurate. I don't know how old those actors were, but I have to say they did a better job in this film than in any of the other ones. Not so much for Boimer's character, the main character, but Kat Kaczynski, played by Albert Schuch, who I thought was phenomenal. He is 10 days younger than me. No wonder he looks so good. (laughs) So the cat character is supposed to be kind of a father figure to Paul and Mm -hmm. the rest of them. He's been there. He's a veteran. He's been there for a couple of years. And these new guys are coming in and he kind of takes them under his wing. I believe he's around 40 in the book. In the 1930 version, he's played by a great silent film actor. I can't remember his name right now, but I really like that guy who actually died at the age of 50 the next year. He's 49 in that film. But don't forget that I watched the 1979 version first, where Ernest Borgnine plays the role of Cat. Hail Ragnar. 
and Hail Ragnar's beard. He is 62 years old in that movie. And I was like, I'm sorry, but this guy is 50 pounds overweight. I am not buying a 62 year old private. So love Ernest Borgnine, but not not a good fit. So Shuk is right in line with age. He's 36. So he's actually appropriately cast in terms of age. One of the things that I remember from the book, and I don't know why this stuck in my head. It stuck in my head so long and so vividly that I'm afraid I made it up. Just a, a little bit of almost like throwaway prose or because it wasn't dialogue, but it was discussing how when you first get to the front, you only know how to take cover in like the big craters and like the big ditches because you don't see all the little ditches that would mm-hmm. like make perfect like it's just like a shallow little thing but you can definitely take cover in it and that's one of the things that cat teaches them is to like as soon as you've been on the front for a little bit you're finding all the places you can hide right and he's also teaching them the difference in in the other versions of the film you see iterations where he's teaching them the difference in the sounds of trench mortars versus regular mortars versus different types of artillery shells where he knows by that time how many seconds you have from when you hear that sound to when it's going to hit and so he's like if you hear this high pitch sound you have one second to hit the dirt or you're dead and if you hear this other sound you have like three seconds but you know all those details make a big difference so it's the difference between life and death for so many people and i can see how that not changing out your troops means that this guy has been here for who knows how long and so he's learned all these things that others have not survived to teach yeah there's some advantages to it there's some continuity there but of course the ptsd and the trauma is intense oh yeah no not okay not okay you call it trauma they call it experience not good not a fan of that idea so speaking of cat his death in this is different from the book yes because like i i remember him being carried and then like he gets him there and it's like oh i didn't realize he was dead that was that was one thing that i remembered being accurate but i didn't think the circumstances of him getting wounded in the first place were the same he was injured in a totally different way in the novel and the other versions of the story but it ends the same way so the whole little boy at the farmhouse shooting him is not in the source material whatsoever I believe he's injured in uh, some kind of shelling. So they're hanging out talking and some artillery goes off near them and he gets his shin gets blown up basically. So he's bleeding, but it's a survivable wound. And so Paul is like, okay, I got to get you to the infirmary. You know, he picks him up, starts carrying him. And what Paul doesn't realize is while he's carrying him, at some point, there's another explosion and a splinter hits him in the back of the head and kills him. So by the time he gets him to the infirmary and sets him down, those exact words are said by the orderly where he says, Could have spared yourself the trouble. He's dead. And he's like, no, he's just passed out. He's just got a shin injury. And in both the other films, he puts his hand behind his head to kind of pick him up and then realizes that his hand is full of blood. And so that's how cat died. So yeah, it has nothing to do with being shot by a little farm boy. That's the one departure where I was like, I'm not really sure why they really had to do this farm boy thing. I think because they gave him a kid that died. Oh yeah. I guess that's a good point. And again, it's been forever. I didn't remember him having uh, getting too much detail on like the wife and family back home and that certainly not i didn't remember him having a kid that died i don't remember that either but i was like well maybe he didn't i just forgot it and then like when the kid shoots him at the end i was like oh that's that's what they were doing it was like a adds to the tragedy of cat's death 
That makes sense. I didn't I didn't think of that. Yeah. The original material also does lighten things up at times. If anything, it's just character development and showing you that these guys are young and they like to play around. Because Cat is famous slash infamous for being able to just find food. And they're telling stories like one time he showed up with two lobsters and I'm like, well, fuck, you get that, right? So like he's always able to somehow find food. So they go on these excursions to go steal some ducks or a goose. But yeah, there are some other lighter things like there's a whole romantic scene, if you want to call it that, for about 10, 15 minutes in both other versions of the film. And it's the three French girls. So they make it into this film. They nod to that in this. Right. They make a nod to it, but that's actually one of the contrasts I found in the 30 versus 79 version is um, they do a longer treatment of them sneaking across this river because they're not supposed to cross the river into this part of the village in France where they are. They entice the girls by offering them food. They're like, hey, can you guys want to hang out? They don't speak the language, right? So there's this German-French barrier, and they're like, we have sausages, we have bread. And of course, the French girls are like, oh, hell yeah, come over. Everybody's starving, right? It's war. Right. So they they go half naked. They go hang out with these girls. It's pretty obvious from both the pre-code and the postcode film that they end up having romantic involvement and going in separate rooms and having sex with these girls. And it's it's depicted as consensual. It's not like the scene in Fury. It's nothing like that. It's kind of like, right. we're all hanging out. We're all young. Here's some food. The girls kind of want to get laid too. And like their parents aren't around and they're, you know, in their early 20s, whatever. But I did find that the 79 version, Paul has some very intimate moments of conversation with the girl that he's with, where again, there's this language barrier but she sort of feels sorry for him being a soldier and what the Germans are going through. And, you know, he has a little bit of a romantic entanglement with her. And I actually really liked the way that was one of my favorite parts of the 79 film. So I don't have a problem with them excluding that here. But yeah, just to go back to the source material, there are moments of joking and levity and boredom, which is accurate. You know, war involves all those things. So, yeah, they did focus on the more depressing intense parts in this i guess so before we go any further i've already been pulling from our research i want to give a really big shout out to the excellent excellent research that our three researchers did for us today big welcome to jason harvey i think this is his first time uh doing research for us and he produced a six-page essay where he gives us a lot of background on eric maria remark the author and the novel and it compares it a little bit to the original film so again i'm not going to sit here and read all of it but we will have this up in our surplus ordinance for you jim randall our returning research champion did a little bit of a breakdown on the 1930 film versus the book again so a little less on the author and more about the actual source material and the story and ben Curley did a little research on was this front a specific place and what unit was remarking, etc., and gave us a little bit of background on that. So I'll mention a few things here and there, but you can go to our Facebook group or just follow Danger Close on Facebook, and I'll be posting the surplus ordinance a little bit after the episode releases so you can read all this for yourself. The biggest and best acting in this and the the one who I think is the most likely to get it, I think there's probably two acting nods out of this. And I think Felix Kemmerer as as Paul is phenomenal. Like in the same way that 1917 doesn't really work without George McKay's acting, this does not work without Felix Kemmerer. He 
just brings it home every single scene. He is emotional and good God. I can't imagine what his skin went through. Just constantly covered in crap. <laughs> that man did not have a clean face throughout this entire shoot. I swear to God. It was just... Maybe it was like the Bong Joon-ho treatment where it's like, well, you're covered in mud, so we're going to make it cosmetic mud so you'll get exfoliated. I hope so, because there's... That would have been great. There are so many scenes of him just so dirty, and he still acts through it and gives this electrifying performance of someone who starts off like so joyful and excited for what's to come. And then we see his illusions about what it is that he's doing just ripped away from him one by one, just from the second he gets out on that battlefield, he is peeled apart. And at the end, we're left with a man who's already dead inside by the time he actually dies. and that is so due to the performance. I know you guys haven't watched it, but that aspect of it did remind me of come and see. Yeah. With the exception being that the kid from come and see wasn't wearing makeup. Yeah. By the end of the production, he just looked like that. This had that vibe, but hopefully fingers crossed in a healthier way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with better oversight and regulations and, Consideration for people's human <laughs> for people's humanity. Germany has much better oversight and regulations in regards to their film industry than America does. Just going to lay that out there. And also, then the 1980s Soviet Union did. Yeah, yeah. That his acting in this was remarkable. Him and Cat, I thought, really carried this movie. Yeah. As far as the the acting perspective, not that anybody else was particularly poor or weak in their performances. There isn't really a, a bad performance in it, but Paul and Kat were just pretty powerhouse acting duo there. I think a, a great example of just the script and a lot of the other actors didn't have as much to do, but when they did, they certainly knocked it out of the park. Uh, Edin Hasanovic, who played uh, Chadden, who ends up killing himself by stabbing a fork into his own neck. I mean, uh. talk about acting. Like Liam says, everyone gets their little bits of performance, even though the main, the two main actors get the most screen time and everyone really showed up to work. Not to mention, can you guess how long it took for them to film this? How long the production was, the shooting? 18 weeks. Liam? Move. Um, I don't know. I'll say what? It, well, you're having us guess, so I'm guessing it's very short. <laughs> I'm going to say 12 weeks. 53 days. Damn. And this was Edward Berger's first big battle scene type movie. He often rode to set with the cinematographer, James Friend. And every day he was pretty much like, I have no idea how we're going to pull this off. There's no way we can get all the you know, all the shots that we need to get done today and all the takes that we need to get done. And somehow they pulled it off. And yeah, they're talking about lack of toilets on set and just being in the mud and the rain and I think even snow for some scenes. But it thank God for them that it was a short production because it looked pretty brutal and pretty intense. Yeah, there were a couple of scenes. I was like, this is not what I would have gone wanted to do as an actor. I don't know. He, he did get that uh, that good apocalypse now. Martin Sheen getting drowned in the mud shot going oh, that was right. that was pretty solid i hope that was some kind of 
peanut butter chocolate uh, concoction <laughs> or something because I'm like, oh man, that does not look fun. I get the feeling it was not, but no, yeah, same. I was really, I was so thankful that that wasn't how uh, Paul died. Right, I thought, I thought that was it. I was like, oh wow, they're going to drown him in mud. I was here for it. <laughs> so here's the thing. Again, this is just a little bit of fight choreography pedantry. Okay. I don't understand what magical properties having a rock in your hand gives you that you can now turn around and hit a guy in the face when before you were drowning in mud. He's in the mud. He's he's squirming. He's squirming and he can't get away and he can't get away. But now he's got a rock so he can get away, turn around onto his back and hit the dude in the face. And you see this a lot in movies where it's just all this. It is a trope. It is like, you you know, it's like, oh, he's done for. There's no way he can get out of it. But now he's got this rock so he can magically. It's it's the magical rock moment where you just get the rock and then you can obviously get out of the chokehold or the the arm lock or whatever it is that you have been unable to get out of previous. I think it's more the motivation. I'm going to chalk it up to the psychological motivation that you're getting. Right. That you feel the rock and you're like, okay, if I can use the very last bit of energy that I have left to swing around and hit him with this rock, I don't have to hit him that hard, but it's going to get him off of me as opposed to using my fist. So I give him a pass on that. That's not like the worst trope in the world. It always grates on me just a little bit. And I know that's that's finicky. I don't want to be that guy, but... I've seen worse tropes. And this is not a movie that's dripping with tropes, I must say. So No, they really avoid a lot of it. The places where it is, it's I think because a lot of the tropes come from all quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> Possibly. You know what I mean? Like I think this is this is the blueprint for a lot of the war movies that came after. This is not a standard bit. We don't do this every episode, but I think uh, because I have so many scenes in my mind and I've seen them done in different ways, I wanted to ask you guys, what was either your favorite scene or the scene that impacted you the most? So it's really tough to pick a like a favorite scene or most impactful scene because this movie has a lot of really gripping visual shit. I think this goes to a matter of I, I like these scenes for the adaptation. So I know we've talked about some of the ways the adaptation hasn't worked for me, but as far as spiritually, thematically, like the spirit of this original text and, you know, maybe this isn't the best or most faithful adaptation to the text as far as the beats and the character nuances as far as like, who is this character? Where does he come from? Like they might've combined a few people, might've taken some liberties here and there, but I think this is a good adaptation of the spirit of the novel and the scene I think that worked the best for me was the opening. Really? Why? Essentially, going all the way through to the journey of the uniform from Heinrich getting killed to Heinrich's body being stripped of the uniform, all the uniforms being sorted and shipped back and then repurposed and cleaned and stitched up and then put back into circulation and into the hands of Paul Balmer. I don't remember something like that necessarily being in the book. It it was not. But I think that is such a, a simple and concise way of visually telling that story that it was just very, very impressive to me. And the opening shot of this movie is, I think, one of the best opening shots I've ever seen. As far as the composition of it goes, this does as much visual storytelling in the opening shot as the opening shot of Star Wars. 
which is famously one of the greatest opening shots because you have the small ship being chased by the very, very large ship. You don't know who any of these people are, but it tells you all of the power dynamics of the story going forward captured in one shot. Yeah. Right. Right. And so that's why that's that's a great shot. Probably the best opening shot in, in cinema history from a storytelling perspective. This is its peer and rival because you have this opening shot that's like the God shot. It's straight down, just like down on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. And it looks to be a battle aftermath, right? Where it's just everything's quiet. Everything is still. And it's just dead bodies laying in the mud and nothing's moving. And then one of the dead bodies gets shot from a far off gunshot. You hear the you hear the report of the rifle and you see the bullet hit. I think it's a machine gun. Isn't it? Well, I think there's both. I think it starts with just one, just like a one shot. And then it goes into the machine guns. But nobody's dying. They're already dead. Right. They're just shooting dead bodies. And it is absolutely and utterly pointless. And for something like that to be the opening shot of a movie that is talking about the horror and the pointlessness of war, I can't think of a better way to open this movie, honestly. Yeah, it it was definitely mind-blowing. And the editing. The editing was great. The hard cut of the scene into the title, right when he slams his entrenching tool into that guy's clavicle which is a callback to the novel and the previous films, because when Kat is explaining to them, like, get rid of this bayonet, here's how you use a bayonet. But honestly, your entrenching tool is best, because if you hit a man between the shoulder and the neck, you can go halfway through his chest, and it's a great way to kill him. And so it's a visual representation of that advice that some veteran has probably given this young soldier. So, yeah, I'm, I'm 100% on board with you in terms of phenomenal visual storytelling and taking advantage of that medium of cinema. See, I think mine is at the opposite end of the film. There's so many great scenes in this, but I think the one that was the most meaningful for me is watching the relationship develop between Paul and Kat, and they make it through to the end of the war. We see that awful scene where Chiodin just repeatedly stabs himself in the neck, and they've lived through that together. And for me, it is that them deciding to go back into the French house, like that whole thing that plays out that then results in Kat's death. It both kind of telegraphs what's coming and feels very tense. And then you get that moment where you feel like everything's okay. And then Kat turns around and there's the little boy who shoots him and he ends up dying from the wound. And it's just... I remember the first the first instance where they go into the same house. I was like, why the hell you went back? I don't understand. Where they steal the goose and have this the first like real moment of joy post getting into the war in the movie. And then they go back and he's going to steal some eggs. Yeah, it's like, why are you breaking into the same house twice? Like, exactly. Oh, seems a little risky. I remembered as I'm watching the second scene of, the, of where Paul is sent to go do the breaking in. And it was like, oh. Oh God, it's got to be so tense to be the guy on the outside, just watching and waiting and listening. Then we get to see the inside movement. It's such a setup for everything that comes with Kat and the payoff where you see him turn around and he sees the child who's got this just like, what's the word for it? Like emotionless, like that child in that moment, you can see the brutalization that he has gone through and suffered 
and the suffering that he's experienced from this war. And that for him, this is one step too far. And he is not going to let these bastards. Goddamn Germans. Yeah, the goddamn Krauts, I think is is what they call them in the film. He's not going to let them take one more egg. And that especially with the armistice, which I don't know that he would have been aware of it as a citizen at the time, but like we are aware of it and we are aware of kind of the brazenness and like, well, you went way too far. You shouldn't have done this. This is criminal. And they're starving too and winter's coming. Like it's a big deal. An egg is a valuable thing, right? Right. They might have been hatching those out to be more ducks, to make more eggs and to slaughter and all this, that and the other thing. And they didn't need to do that. But that they chose to go do it is is like, it kind of seems like a death sentence from the beginning when you realize that that's where they're going. And then to watch it all play out in this agonizingly, it feels slow because you know what's coming. It is not slow in the film. You have this moment where you think they get away, but you also know that it's inevitable because this is the kind of film that kind of telegraphs from the beginning that everybody's going to die. Whereas something like 1917, you don't know. Or we haven't covered it yet, but Dunkirk. Both of those films, there's the sense that everybody could die, but someone's probably going to make it. Whereas in this, by the time we've hit that point, I was like, no one's going to make it. Everybody's dying in this. Yeah, if anything, in that scene, the real question is, is Kat going to get it or is Paul going to get it? Exactly. Because Paul's in a pretty compromising position. They lock him in. You're like, oh, he is fucked. You know, like you you don't you don't know. It's so well played out and the tension is done just the right amount, which tension in these kinds of scenes is a difficult thing to know because a millisecond too long or too short can really affect how your viewers are going to see it. And this scene in particular, it perfectly captures that time frame. So I was just like, this is such a culmination. That's the other part of it is that it is kind of the culmination of all of of the Germans deciding, well, this is ours, actually. This land that's not ours and never has been ours, but we're just going to take it because we want it, is very evident in this where they don't need to go and steal those eggs. They are no longer starving. You, we saw them have a good meal the night before. They do it because it's the end of the war and they want that last big moment. And that hubris brings Cat down and I both felt for him I mean, what did you expect, dude? You didn't have to do this. This is justified, almost. It's a great scene that encapsulates the bigger themes of the film in one small moment. Yeah, I I think the snow falling while Kat is just sitting there with his hands down his pants, trying to keep his hands warm and waiting uh, was such a great touch. And yeah, I imagine it's not coincidental. They either added it or waited for a morning when they had snow. But yeah, all of the shooting in that is just perfectly accentuates everything that they're going for. Little moment of levity in a production side note. Felix Kammerer mentions that when they were shooting that scene, he's like, we did that take of us actually running out into the field and slurping up the eggs from the canteen 30 to 40 times for whatever reason. Gross. And it was, uh, it was an egg. It was some kind of sugar paste with water and something else. I forget, oh, good. Like a runny thing. Yeah, kind of, except it still ended up. And he's very discreet about the way he describes this, but basically he used this moment to describe how they had a lack of toilets on set. And those takes definitely gave both of them the runs. So he was like, it was a rough day on set where we had to find a place to do kind of what you see them doing at the latrine. Gotta go back to the the shitting log. Yeah. From uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. Right. The old poop and stick. So Dan... 
what was your favorite or most interesting or the one that really spoke to you the most? I guess maybe I'll be a little unoriginal here, but I have to say that this scene actually moved me to tears and it was the only time where I actually cried watching this film. That didn't happen to me in either of the other versions nor in the book, so that's why it struck a chord with me. And it's a scene that is in every version of the story and it is this pivotal meeting between Paul Boimer, our main character, and this unknown French soldier. In the source material, in the original novel, the French are overrunning their position and he decides, and I think it actually happens at, yeah, it happens at night in the novel. So he just kind of turns around and pretends to be dead in this crater and just shoves his face in the mud. And as the French are running over, one of them falls into the crater and like he can feel him land next to him. And so he had a very instinctual reaction because he was ready. He had the dagger in his hand and he's like, if anybody gets anywhere near me and I need to not pretend to be dead anymore, I'm going to stab the guy. So when the guy falls and hits him, he turns around and stabs him in the chest once or twice or whatever. And then the scene pretty much plays out the way you see it here, although there's a little more dialogue. He spends more time talking to the soldier and telling him how he's going to write his family and he's apologizing to him and it's eloquent and it works for the book. Now, in the original film, he does all that talking and I appreciated what slight changes they made in this version. One interesting thing is that so the Frenchman doesn't just fall in there on accident. He is taking aim at Paul, realizing he's alive and he's about to shoot him, which maybe the story is trying to justify Paul's actions a little bit more. But in my opinion, none of this needs justification. This is war. Close combat is a thing. Someone is near you. You don't have time to figure out, is this guy going to try and kill me or do I need to try and kill him? You're just going to act. But the way they shot the scene and the makeup, you know, we talked about kind of the mud before and the particular style of mud that they caked onto his face for this scene actually kind of made him look like a monster. Yep. You really can't see a lot of his facial features. You can tell that he's crying. You can tell that he's upset, but he looks like, I don't know, some kind of mud two-face or something, mm-hmm. you know, like it's it's really covering up half mm-hmm. his face. It's a very good depiction of how he's feeling because I think he feels like a murderer. He feels like a monster in this scene. And again, in the source material, he's apologizing to the Frenchman saying, you know, all I could see was your rifle and your bayonet and your training and the danger. But I didn't stop to think about the fact that you have a wife and you have children and you were a pulls out his documentation and looks at him. He learns his name. You know, that's something that happens in every version. And just the acting that camera pulls off in this scene was so touching and so incredible. And it really condensed all of that feeling of tragedy. Again, in the bigger picture, war in general, the way wars are fought, the way we motivate young kids to want to sign up, and then the situations that people who are at least not in their current state willing to do that fighting themselves put these kids, young kids into. I think more so than the shooting or the editing or anything else, I think really the acting here is what sold this scene to me. And they do it quickly. In the original story, he spends like an entire night, six, eight hours with this guy. Yeah, he's like stuck in there for a long time. And this guy is clearly gurgling to death for that entire time. And he's disturbed by the sound. And he's going through all these phases while this Frenchman is dying in front of him for a really long time. So, you know, they did it over a three-minute scene, but they were able to deliver 
the poignancy that the book does with those visuals. Well, that fucking gurgling Frenchman was acting his ass off, too. It does make more sense that that was much longer stretched out because, like, his frustration with, like, stop it! Stop making the sound! I was like, dude, you've had to listen to this for all of 90 seconds. Like, Well, yeah, but it was super fucking gross. Like, I didn't blame it. Like, I was like, no, dude, like, you gotta stop making that noise. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like that noise. That's not good. And that's one thing you see a lot in all versions of this story is moments of just unbridled terror from troops literally soiling themselves at the sound of artillery or at the impact of artillery rounds to the screaming that these young kids are doing and freaking out when they're underground in the bunker and their artillery is hitting and exploding everywhere. And it's so believable. The tank scene, something that I think is probably the best thing that's not in the source material that worked really well because you hear the rumble of the tanks in the distance and anybody that watches war films is like, that's not shelling. That is a low, constant rumble. You're like, that can only be one thing. That is a big, heavy machine. And sure enough, it's tanks. And the fact that they show the evolution of them going from, like, literally firing their rifles at a tank, at, like, the front of a tank, which you know is just the most futile gesture ever. Tell it to Tom Hanks. Right. To the point where they blow them up. But when they're sitting in the trench and the tanks are going over the trench and they are just screaming in terror and horrified. Well, and also because like we learned in the They Shall Not Grow Old episode, tanks were new and secret to a certain extent. Like, Tanks were just like a brand new technology. These guys have probably never seen one. Maybe didn't even know that they existed. I wanted to give just a touch of background on Remark's military experience, and there's not that much available in detail. He was drafted into the German army in 1916 as he turned 18. He didn't volunteer. He was with the 2nd Guards Reserve Division of the German Empire. This unit served in the First Battle of the Marne in 1914 and the Battle of the Somme in 1916, which Remark would have arrived at the very end of. In 1917, they took part in the Battle of Arras, and we know that he took part in the Battle of Passchendaele, or the Third Battle of Ypres, very famous for being extremely muddy. It's one of those examples of those staggering statistics that you get out of World War One, where more people died in total in World War Two, but some of these battles, like Passchendaele, more Germans died in that battle than in all other German wars since the unification of the country combined. He was wounded by artillery at Passchendaele, and then he kind of spent the rest of the war uh, in a hospital and then was discharged. I think he was recalled for a brief time, but that was kind of the end of the action that he saw. So that makes sense. And he wrote a book based on his experiences, but using fictional characters. When this film came out and was released in Germany, The Nazi party was just starting to get traction, you know, 1930, early 30s in Germany. So Josef Goebbels, famous for then becoming the propaganda minister of the Hitler Hitler administration later and of the Nazi party, they bought a whole chunk of seats and showed up and released mice and stink bombs and yelled and tried to do as much as they could to disrupt the premiere of this film. The cops were called. It was this whole drama. And then only a couple of years later, when the Nazi party took control of Germany or took control of parliament, they banned this book. And it was one of the first books that the Nazi party burned in, in their book burnings. And they 
slung all the mud that you can imagine that remark was a secretly you know from a french jewish family and that he hated germany and he was a marxist and he was you know trying to subvert the german government and produce propaganda etc and he had already left the country at that point because he could see the writing on the walls sadly in 43 i think they ended up executing his sister for being unpatriotic you know just an excuse basically because they knew they couldn't get a hold of him Fast forward to these last couple of days, I'm online talking about the film and someone comments saying, yeah, Remark would kind of be known as a pogue nowadays, person other than a grunt. He was there and in the army, but he didn't really serve in combat. And so I started to poke at it. And I said, okay, well, what do you mean? You know, where's your evidence, whatever. And he said, I was like, well, he was injured four or five times, you know, even by artillery. He said, yeah, well, the artillery hit way back in the rear. That's when he was injured. And I wanted to, it's the first time I've heard this opinion. So I was like, okay, do you have any evidence? Do you have an article or something? So he links me an article in German that I can't read. I had my friend translate it saying that there was word from his unit, from other soldiers. He was a socialist. He tried to sort of create a mutiny because he was against the war and they promoted him and he may have awarded himself some medals. Just all this stuff that like sounded like propaganda to me. But, you know, the guy was like, well, before you call me a fascist, just know, like, this is coming from people that he served with. And I was like, okay, well, let's see this evidence. I want to read this article. Anyways, the guy's point was there were real critiques of Remark's military service, but because the Nazis smeared him after that, everything kind of got washed away because you could say, well, all of this is just Nazi propaganda. And so we can't question him. It became tough to tell the difference between Nazi propaganda and the stuff that came before the Nazi propaganda. Right. I am curious if we have German listeners that know anything about this, because to me, it all sounds like the source is probably extreme right wing propaganda, whether modern or from the times. But I'm curious to hear anyone who has you know, links to articles that solidify a little bit more remarks, uh, past military history and et cetera. So I want to hear what you guys think. It's such a thing of the time where it's hard to know what's real and what's not. And at this point, we'll never know what was real and what's not because it is such a, this is a very perspective based thing, first of all. And it is over a hundred years ago at this point for what he actually did in the service. So it's, it's fascinating, and I am definitely going to go do a deep dive on the internet about it, but it doesn't make me like or view the book differently. This is one of those instances, I think, where I kind of don't give a shit. And granted, that's me not being a military person, having very little skin in this particular game. But also, to Katie's point, it happened so long ago that obviously the artwork that he produced has long since taken on its own significance right and become its own entity separate from the author's own deeds that he may or may not have been basing this on i don't know it's to a certain extent that's a, a purity test that i'm not necessarily willing to subject an author to especially one who is from 100 years ago i have very, very little grounds to judge them or their military service, especially in a conflict that was so terrible anyway. It's like, well, you weren't in the shit enough to write this book and not be full of shit. Right. That doesn't make any sense to me. That is 
Yeah, it smells like bullshit. It does. It's it, it it does not sound like a good faith argument, especially from 100 years later. You know, you got to consider who's saying the quote unquote negative things about a person. If the Nazis don't like you, I'm pretty sure you're all right. You know what I mean? Especially if you are a World War One vet that the Nazis don't like. Now it's time for the breakdown. It's the point in our show when we ask our three questions. What was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Katie, why don't you start us off? So I think the objective of the film, like the story in general, is to talk about the horrors of war. War in general. And then I think this film really dials into the specific horrors that it was to participate in World War One near the end. And World War One is considered one of the most brutal conflicts with at least 15 to 20 million people dying as a direct result of this war. And those folks who were on the ground experienced warfare in a way that no one had yet. And it forever changed the world. And I think this film goes a little beyond from what Dan has said about the other stories is to give us a little bit of context about what the Germans, both the military side and then what the political side thought of this situation and how desperately they wanted to get out of it. Because if you think about it, Matthias Erzberger, the guy who's played by Daniel Bruhl, who signs the actual treaty, he died three years later. He was murdered by Nazis because of this action that he took. He was murdered three years after signing or three years after this book came out? Uh, three years after signing. Okay. Because they they weren't Nazis. Pre-Nazis. You can still get pregnant from pre-Nazi. <laughs> they wouldn't have been called Nazis then, but... Proto-Nazis. Proto-Nazis. But that's what eventually turned into the Nazi movement are the people who killed him. The nationalist German party, essentially. These were people who were espousing this idea that Germany could have won the war if not but for the backstabbing of the politicians who abandoned the troops. And that was kind of the myth that went on and partly what fueled the Nazi party into power. Exactly. This war had such far-reaching consequences, and I think it does a pretty decent job of trying to give us a little bit of a bigger picture, while also dialing in very deeply on what the day-to-day life was like for the grunts on the ground. Was it on target? Absolutely. I think this movie hits real hard. It allows you to sympathize with these men who we would generally consider to be on the wrong side of history. You can sympathize with them and still see their terrible actions and see them as both human beings who are being not necessarily forced into it. But like once once you sign up, you're kind of on on the rails for it, you know, and who are also representatives of the German government who is perpetrating this war. And I think the movie does a really good job of straddling those two lines so that, like I said earlier in the show, I was both sad when the French soldier stabs Paul through the heart, you know, 30 seconds before the armistice begins. And like, I get it, man. I mean, I see why you did this because of the war that had been perpetrated against the French. And did I like it? Yes, I did. I really, I think it was beautiful. It was well shot, well acted. 
I was a little hesitant on the score at the beginning, but by the end, I think it won me over because I like that little touch of the modern that it brings to the story. And I like a weird score. I'm always down when they throw some weird ass shit in there to make you think. And it's really reinvigorated my love of uh, modern German cinema. And got to give a shout out to Daniel Bruhl, who most listeners to this will probably know as Baron Zemo in Captain America and the Winter Soldier. And he's oh, in really the guy who dances in the MCU. Yes, that's him. He's also in a uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. OK, time out. I, how is the, all this Marvel crap getting ahead of Inglorious Bastards? Because I haven't seen Inglorious Bastards and I hate Quentin Tarantino. Oh, my Lord. Okay. Well, you'd love his. He's great in his role in Glorious Bastards. I believe it. He'd give such a thoughtful performance in this. Like you can see his conflict and he gets to deliver the line that is the foretelling. Monsieur Le Marachal, please um, be fair to your opponent or else this piece will be hated. Just. If you exact such a heavy toll, the German people are going to resent you, essentially. I'm really glad we watched this. And if you have not seen it yet, even if you've seen all the other versions of All Quiet on the Western Front, or you've seen none of them, this is well worth a watch. And it's on Netflix, so pretty easy to catch. Dan? Yeah, I'm really glad this got a release on Netflix because inevitably so many more people will be exposed to it. And that's great. So, again, I can cheat a little bit here because I did watch an interview with Edward Berger, the director, and Albert Schuch obviously are on a promotion. uh, What do you call that circuit right now? A promotional tour. Berger talked about he's born in 1970, so he's 52 this year. And he was talking about war films in general and the perspective of a German on World War I and World War II. So this very, very famous German novel that's been with us since I'm, you know, since I'm a young kid. And we we have a very different attitude towards war or we have a very different education with war. We have a very different cultural heritage. Germany obviously started two wars in the last century and brought a lot of terror and horror to the world. And we felt that that perspective is an important one to tell because obviously a movie from, if if you're born with that, um, the movie will feel very differently from an American movie or British movie that uh, where soldiers went to war, won it, were celebrated victoriously and uh, brought home a different kind of feeling. And we didn't grow up with that feeling. So we wanted to share that, that, that emotion with, with an international audience. And he's totally right that since the author wrote the book, no German production has made a film about this. And not that Americans can't do their own version, but I think it was way overdue to have a German production of this story. And just like everybody else, he has the advantage of hindsight that Remark didn't have when he wrote this book of seeing the result of World War II and all of that conflict. And so I think as a German, he has a unique perspective and the whole German team does. So that was part of their objective was to bring a German perspective onto this story. And of course, they have the ability, not more than anyone else, but they are in a very special place to really bring this anti-war sentiment to the situation. Was it on target? Yes. 
I mean, again, I mentioned earlier, Katie's always talking about kind of not liking filmmakers that are wishy-washy or that don't commit to their message or don't commit to their idea. And I think they swung for the fences here for better or for worse in every detail, both in the big picture and in the small intimate picture to really go for it. And again, having read the book and watched the first two films, my internal question was always, okay, are they going to bring something new to the table here with all the tools that you have in 2022 in retelling this story and getting this message across to their audience? And I think they definitely did. Now, like we talked about, there are pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses to the film, just like the other two versions do. Being able to take advantage of a hundred years plus of advancement in cinema in terms of the more realistic style of the acting, the shooting, editing, which Liam clearly laid out in that intro scene, which I agree with him is exceptional. The kind of streamlining of the plot for the most part in taking out sort of Paul's time back home and all of that. Again, not that it's not worthwhile to tell that part of the story, but this did really keep you in the trenches with the characters. And of course, having the historical retrospective of this being post-World War II. Uh, the 79 film was also post-World War II, but they didn't really apply that retrospective as far as I'm concerned, because it was mostly just a rehashing of the first film. I think you are less attached to the supporting characters, so the deaths of Paul's friends outside of Cat are not quite as impactful as they are in the novel and in some of the other versions of the film. Except that one dude they light on fire. That was pretty gruesome. Yep. I'm not saying that the Deaths aren't impactful. I'm saying we don't know those characters as well. Right. So you don't have as deep an intimacy. They made up for it in a couple of places, like forking yourself to death. And you're just like, oh, I don't give a shit about you. Oh, Jesus. I didn't mean I wanted you to die like that. Oh, God. But it's the one criticism that while it doesn't stick out to me, nor does it ruin the movie for me, when people say, well, I felt like they should have spent a little more time on their friendships and I cared more about the other characters and the other versions. I'm like, well, that's a fair point. Like, it depends on you subjectively whether that affects you, but that's definitely a drawback of this particular version in this film. Yeah. I, again, the last act is a little more detached and less cohesive. The little boy shooting cat and kind of changing that part of the story is, you know, a risk. I don't know 100% how well that worked, but I get what they were going for. I may be on the other side of the 50-50 fence from Liam in terms of how the political stuff worked, the bigger picture stuff that they were doing with the politicians as well as the generals. And I think that has less to do with the decision to show those things and more about how the filming and editing depicted those things. For example, the director mentions the juxtaposition of what the troops are eating in the trenches versus what the politicians are eating on this train and at the general's table. So very paths of glory kind of. Right. But they don't comment on that or beat you over the head with it. They're just showing you that the politician is drinking coffee out of this like really fancy gold rimmed China and that the general clearly has so much food he can throw some of it to his dog. And, he's, and he just doesn't care. Like he's so casual about it. It's, right. it's, it's disgusting. Yeah. Again, it's the style of the storytelling that is really, for the most part, sticking to the visual aspect of things. And that I really appreciated. In terms of just... 100% my own opinion and being subjective based on every other version of this that I saw. 
I did not really like Paul's death scene. It was well done, and they accomplished what they were going for in this particular style. And again, I give them credit for going for it and not being wishy-washy. But I think that the source material and the other films have a more peaceful moment for Paul's death. And I, I feel like Paul's character went through enough in watching every single one of his friends die and going through barrages, going through attacks and counterattacks and retreats. Like you saw enough trench warfare. There wasn't enough justification to not let Paul have the peaceful death that he got in every other version of this story. In the book, again, it's left very vague, so you could kind of do it however you want, but it seemed like he had died peacefully. This was kind of the opposite of that. Not to say that it was brutal, they still kind of had a moment of silence for him, but for me, I would say Paul's death, I liked it better in other versions. I never thought that any time in recent times I would see a film about World War I that I think is better than 1917, but this is it for me. And I love 1917. I mean, I'm on the record about that. But there's enough more big picture and more plot here that as a story about the war, I think this is a better film than 1917. I think 1917 is a better film, but this is a better World War I film. I agree. I think I agree with you. If 1917 won more Oscars than this will win, I can't necessarily disagree with that decision as a piece of art, but I really think that they nailed so many things well. And the scope of this film is grander in a in a good sense, not in like, oh, you reached for too much and it fell apart. And the last point I'll make before I close is uh, it's interesting the timing of this because the director commented on, he's like, well, because of when this movie's coming out, inevitably people are going to make parallels to the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. But that was completely unintentional because clearly this movie was planned well before that conflict started. The director says... When the novel was written, the author kind of thought that maybe we'd learned our lesson. And clearly he had no idea that World War II was coming. Now we've had 70 years of peace in Europe until now. And it seems that world events are showing us that that's still not the case. So I think the message of this film is just as relevant as any other times that it's been visited. And I absolutely love this movie. As hard as it is to watch, because it is really intense and really violent, I can't wait to see it again. I do think that some current events really do come into play in the themes of this film, because there are some things that I'm sure I understand that like the, the timeline of the filmmaking versus the invasion of Ukraine and whatnot, but there are some kind of throwaway lines that the current war in Ukraine, yes. The overall, like, last five years history, no. Like, that is very much in play and I think very much informed this film. And I think was part of the reason why you're telling this story now. The the lines about where they're like, this land was supposed to be ours and we're going to make sure that we have it. Right. We're going to go take it. And that's a lot of the rhetoric that's coming out of Putin's Russia about different parts of Ukraine. And they've been trying to chip away at that for like five years now Mm -hmm. that is well within play. And I think Katie, what you said about, you know, Oh, well, we're going to go get these eggs. You know, like I, I really didn't like that portion of the movie because it really didn't make any sense except in the context of taking things that don't belong to you. 
If that is the larger theme that is informing this movie from the past decades worth of history in Europe from now, then that scene makes sense. But if that's not the point, then that scene doesn't make any sense to me and I don't really like it. But I do think that there's just too, too much of recent history baked into this movie for it not to be part of why they made this movie. And I think with the the rise of much more right-wing governments, both in Europe and in America and in South America and just Asia, just these, a lot of strong men are coming into, into power again or trying to, and there's a lot of vying for it and a lot of nationalism and a lot of these echoes of what happened in the first half of the 20th century in Europe. And I have to think that was the largest part of the objective. Otherwise they would have just fucking made this closer to the book. Mm, Okay. I think that with, without that intent, a lot of their choices don't make any sense, you know? And again, like the things that they add and the things that they cut out, like cutting out Paul going home, You don't need that in this story if the idea is not to make like the absolute faithful adaptation, but to take that story and put it in the context of modern events. I don't know if they talk about it in interviews or not, but I feel like that has to have informed a lot of their decision making is just the recent history. He did mention that in slightly less specific terms, but he did talk about the rise of right-wing politics all over the world and how that definitely affected his thinking. So yes, that is a part of it. I mean, honestly, the 1979 version was made for TV. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been a big cinematic adaptation of this meant for theaters since 1930. And you could just make a strict, according to Hoyle, adaptation of this book And everybody would have been fine because Dan, I totally get where you're coming from where you're like, I really didn't just want to watch the same, these same beats happen over and over again. So I get it being even more refreshing, but if you'd never read the book, if you'd never seen the other movies, which I'm willing to bet most people haven't anymore. And if they did, they had to watch like the old 1931 in the middle of a history class or an English class or something like that. They could have done a better adaptation if that was what they wanted to do. And enough time has passed that it's not uncalled for to just make a, a another version of All Quiet on the Western Front. But it's a question of why did they make it now and why did they make it the way they made it? And I think that is impossible to take away from the the recent historical context. Was it on target? We'll see. The The book and the original 1930 film adaptation both caused a pretty big shitstorm. Mm-hmm. There was a very vocal reaction for and against it. I think everybody interacted with it. Everybody read it. Everybody saw it and had some kind of relationship with the material, either for or against. I don't know if this is going to make those same kind of waves. I think it was to a certain extent intended to. Like you said, the author thought that maybe we'd learned our lesson and obviously we haven't. So this is obviously repeating yourself, but louder and in a more visual aspect, because this is visually just absolutely visceral and gripping. So I think it is on target in a lot of ways. We'll see if it has the impact that it's looking for. Some of the stuff in it, I still 
I don't love all of the choices that they made, but they were very pointed and intentional. Nothing really in this movie happened by accident. I don't think that there was anything that they were like, oh, well, I don't know why he did that. These guys knew what they were doing and why they were doing it. So I have to think that everything here was a choice. I just don't know that I loved all of the choices. But the movie as a whole, I liked a lot. I thought visually, we didn't really get into the cinematography too much. It, It was obviously influenced by some of the cinematography in 1917, but the cinematography in 1917 is so goddamn good that like that's going to impact a lot of movies going forward, especially World War One movies. The same way that the cinematography in Saving Private Ryan kind of dictated what World War Two movies looked like going forward for a while. Mm-hmm. I think 1917 is going to we're going to see a lot of shadows moving as the flares pass by kind of kind of stuff going forward. And I'm kind of fine with that because that. Those scenes are just, they, they absolutely fuck. They're so good. Some of the cinematography got a little Terrence Malicky for me, but they never lingered on it too long where it's just like, and this is the nature and this is the humanity. And it's just like, I know I get it. You don't have to keep cutting back to the same tree that looks like Christ on the cross. Like I don't need to, it's like all these trees that are like twisted in weird ways and kind of sprawled out. And there were so many tree shots. I agree. <laughs> a lot of tree shots. And I kept waiting for those tree shots to pay off in some way. And they never did. Really? Even when there was like a three quarters of a naked dude in the tree, which is from the novel, by the way. Well, so yes, that one, but like that one doesn't justify the number of other tree shots in this movie. It didn't go full thin red line where it's just like, oh, I'm just going to take a picture of this bird dying for three hours. Like, it's not Terrence Malick, but it was, I think, influenced by some of those choices. I want to throw a little bit of uh, background on the editing on this uh, because the director was talking about it. His first cut was three hours. Oh, God. And he was like, it's too much. I need to cut some more. He cut it down to just over two. He showed that version to Netflix and Netflix was like, this feels a little rushed. It feels like you cut out too much and the final version ended up being two and a half hours. You know, it's funny. I was watching this and then like Tina came in the room. So I paused it and I was like, oh man, we've been watching this for a while. Like I gotta be, I gotta be like three quarters of the way through this thing. And I paused it and I was like, not even halfway through. And I was like, well, Jesus fucking Christ. Like how many more people can die in this? Like (laughs) all of them, I think like three out of his four friends were dead by halfway through the movie. And I'm like, what more is going on in this movie? And I was like, oh, it's the diplomats and the general's going to throw wine on the floor. Like, so there was like a lot of like extraneous stuff that they filled the time with. I didn't hate all of it. I think I liked the movie. I, I like, I like this movie. I think it was good. Okay. Got a thumbs up from Liam. So what are we doing next guys? Well, we're not a hundred percent sure yet. We're still on this reduced schedule. We're going to get something out for you guys again, hopefully once a month. So this is our November release. We're going to have a December release, which we have a plan, but we also have a special interview slash film episode that we're doing next month. So I'm going to keep you guys guessing. We will be back and we will be doing something great, but it is a little up in the air. Anyways, uh, we really appreciate you guys' patience. We appreciate that you guys are tuning in, even though we're taking a little bit of a break. It's really helping us catch up. Liam's got a play going on right now. We all have family stuff and holiday plans and, you know, trips here and there. 
So this project will return shortly and we really scrambled. Thanks again to our researchers to be able to come out with something contemporary where we could do as much background on it as we could for you guys. And uh, yeah, please go to our Facebook group on Danger Close podcast discussion group on Facebook and chime in on what you guys think of the film because I know many, many, many of you have access to it. And I really am curious to continue the conversation online and find out more about the history if you guys know more about it. So we will talk to you guys very soon. Bye. Bye.